0: This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news, today's talk. Six forty Toronto. We bring on the uh, leader of the opposition, Ontario NDP leader, Mart Styles. Mart, it's always great to have you on Toronto today. Thank you very much for the time.
1: Thanks so much. It's great to be here.
0: Anything that needs to be cleared up from some of the various coverage uh yesterday. Everything was happening so fast, a lot of moving parts. Was was her removal from the party all about yesterday or a series of events?
1: No, it was it was a, a culmination of a number of in instances we've had across the last you know while, and uh, and it wasn't really just specifically about her statement at all. To be honest, um, you know, in our caucus, there's there's room for lots of different views, um, even dissenting ones. We we have a lot of debates, and we are a team, but we have this. You know, you have to have trust in each other, and you have to be able to work as a team, and. Uh, MPP JAMA just kept violating that trust. You know, it, it wasn't about her statement or even, frankly, about her stance on Israel and Palestine, because, you know, we know the, the tragedy that's unfolding there and mm-hmm. the, the pain that's already been caused. Um, so we, we stood by her when she apologized for that, and we, we, uh, we didn't want to see her censured. But there's a point at which, Um, when an MPP takes, you know, a number of unilateral actions, like she's just acting independently without giving us any notice and catching us by surprise constantly, that it just becomes too big a distraction from the work we have to do uh, and our job is, you know, to hold Doug Ford accountable, um, and I think it's a really important job. We take it very seriously.
0: Were these things you were spotting personally? Were these things other MPPs or staff were coming to you and saying, "Listen, this this is becoming too toxic in a, an environment at Queens Park," or they're hearing from their constituents? What was it? A combination of
1: it was it was a, it was a combination of those things. To be honest, um, there were some things that you know agreements I had with her that were broken. Um, uh, my colleagues felt undermined, even by the way, people who are very, you know, had originally said, look, we, we think her apology is fine. We understand the issues. People who really want to be out there supporting communities right now. And unfortunately, her unilateral actions just continue to cause problems. I mean, we, we just can't afford to have surprises like that right now. Um, and, and that, I think, is, is for me as a leader, it's a really tough decision. It's a really difficult decision. I mm. certainly uh, want, you know, MP Pajama to be able to speak and, in the legislature and, and vote and do all of those things. Uh, but, you know, if you're going to act as an independent, then you're going to sit as an independent.
0: Is that a personal conversation you had to have with her yesterday face to face?
1: You know what, by, by the time things rolled out yesterday, it was, it was more my, had come to the point of, you know, we'd had many of these conversations. It was time to be, uh, you know, just to, to, to let her know that it was, it was done.
0: But I mean, did you have a a desire to tell her yourself and it was just made impossible by too much in the midst?
1: Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was really just one of those times when, you know, the timing of everything plays out a certain way and, uh and just couldn't, couldn't even find her (laughs) to be honest. So, you know, you you try your best. We've had lots and lots of conversations over the last few weeks and she's been talking to my team, including many of my MPPs. And, you know, I think again, you know, you can, you can continue to act, you know, do a certain things a certain way, act a certain way, but we're, we're an MDP caucus. You got to stick with your team. You got to be part of the team. You got to, you know, show up for the team. And when that doesn't happen, it's, it's, uh, it just, it it comes to a point where it undermines all our other work.
0: Leaders have had to do this. Doug Ford's kicked people out of his caucus. Uh, Justin Trudeau's had to do this at the federal level. Do you look and say it's just a tremendous sense of of disappointment that it came to this? Does it it feel like just a failure over the relationship between her and the party, between you and her? What do you feel?
1: Uh, You know, obviously I'm saddened about it. I'm disappointed because we worked very, very hard uh, as a team to try to... um, you know find ways to work together and build trust and and but Ms. Jana like repeatedly violated that mm. trust. and uh, you know, just like on any team, you know, you can't have somebody on your soccer team. <laughs> I was just watching the the Beckham bio hunt, <laughs> uh, which I'm sure everybody is. Uh, it was it was a it was great to see it in a way because I think it's not that different. you know we're on a team. Um, and we have to work together as a team. And if one person is always running in the opposite direction, it, we're going to keep losing. And we can't afford to lose. We're not here uh, on just one issue. We're here to support people in all across Ontario who are really hurting. And that includes people in the Palestinian community in, in Toronto and, and across the GTA and across Ontario. It includes so many people.
0: And this is politics. Mart Stiles is our guest, Ontario NDP leader. This is politics, isn't it? Because you can never make everybody happy by one decision. It's not even, it shouldn't be the stated goal of a politician, but I bet you're hearing from people who are saying, I'm disappointed. I believe in Sarah Jama, and I'm sure you're hearing from people saying, that's a relief to me. We thought you kept her too long. So again, it's that balancing act and, and you can't please everybody.
1: That, that's very true. You, you can't please everyone. And you know, in politics, obviously, you know, we want most people, we'd like to, we want to win a majority government in 2026. Um, We're not going to do that by dividing people. We just won't. We have to build people up and we have to bring them together. And they have to agree with our vision. And this uh, MPP was putting people in a position where they couldn't, speak out on the things that matter to them and that's not okay how do you how and, can you
0: explain more about that who, who who couldn't speak out about things that matter to them
1: well i think people like my my colleague mpp dolly begum who mm-hmm. uh is uh you know has a, a large muslim community a uh, large arab community that she speaks with people in my right in my in our communities who are looking for somebody to be you know clear with them look our pol our party policy actually on um what's happening in Israel and Palestine is very strong. Uh, we've been calling for a ceasefire. We are absolutely looking for a de-escalation of violence, and we want humanitarian aid to hit the region right now. Like, this just has to happen. There's a tragedy unfolding, and you know, we, we, we also mm-hmm. feel, of course, terrible about what happened in Israel. But you know, that's a very strong position. Uh, there aren't any other parties talking in that, those that mm-hmm. strong terms like that. So we're not afraid to do that. But MPP, Dolly Begum who herself is a Muslim woman, a hijab-wearing woman, she needs to feel safe and strong enough to be able to go out there and be clear with people about where we stand. We cannot afford for those positions that we hold to be muddied up. And that's just one example. But there's also, of course, you know, with this stuff happening, there's been a lot of um, outside, of course, threats. It's not MPP John's fault by any means, uh, but there's been a lot of threats to our constituency offices, to MPPs can't afford to continue that people are not feeling safe in
0: this moment understood thanks very much for the clarification i know difficult day but it's uh onward and upward as it is in any scenario like this for any political party thank you for the time this morning
1: thank you so much Greg.
0: this is toronto today with greg brady
1: toronto's news today's talk
0: 640 toronto he is city council for don Valley East from ward 16 john burnside john it's great to have you back on toronto today thanks for making the time
2: absolutely thanks greg
0: Uh, We all were a little uh, rattled by some of what we saw on Saturday, and I think the two um, pockets of video are the protests um, and and the screaming. It was a bit of a mob scene outside a Toronto restaurant, but also what our women and men in in the Toronto Police Services were put through trying to protect uh, entryways to the Gardner Expressway, something we hadn't seen in a long time and we didn't think we would again. What was your reaction to what happened Saturday?
2: I hate to use the word unacceptable because it seems that every politician uh, uses that term. uh, But but it is unacceptable behavior, and and the question is what do we do to curb that behavior? Um, You know, in think as as much as I was uh, dismayed by what I was watching. Think as you to point you make. Think of the people who are in the cafe,
3: yeah,
2: uh, and the police. I mean, the police are trained to deal with that and not to discount what they have to deal with. That is part of their job. These other people are having a coffee or, or a Danish or whatever the case is, and there's a mob outside that you know uh, looks like they want you know want to attack them, and you know sadly this takes things to a new level. Greg, like it's it's one thing to have random acts by ignorant people, it's not acceptable, but it's it's something we understand can happen. But when you have an organized harassment and terrorization of people, I mean that's very. Canadians should be very troubled by that, Uh, because what we're saying is you, your family, your friends, your business are open season just because of who you are, not what you've done.
0: Yeah, completely unacceptable. I I had a conversation yesterday with a former police officer and he said to me, and I know you are as well for our audience's context. uh, and, and, And we were like trying to ask each other, push each other a little bit. Well, what's an acceptable form of public protest? And we couldn't narrow down the definition, John, but we knew when when something wasn't and we knew when a line was crossed. And that's what we saw on Saturday in both those cases.
2: Yeah, well, I think there are acceptable places to protest. So yeah. Let's start with that. You know, the legislature, city hall, uh, public parks for all I care. Not that I necessarily like some of the protests, but, you know, public spaces. But when you're out front of somebody's business or you're actually going up onto a highway, I'm more concerned about the business, to be honest, Greg, because yeah. these are people just minding their, their, their own business. And I, I think... You know the question is, well, what do we do? Well, certainly, what has the federal government done? You know, I've never seen so many, such a large group of people—twenty-four of the twenty-five MPs—being so silent on an issue. Uh, you know, um, so that that in itself is uh, really disconcerting, and I hope people hold uh, these individuals to account. But you know, like for me, there's a very basic charge in the Criminal Code, which is cause disturbance. In my mind, if you go in front of someone's business and you're Targeting that business, not for what they do. This isn't a PETA protest against a butcher shop. This is targeting people for just who they are. At the very least, in my mind, that's caused disturbance.
0: Yeah. And obviously, when it crosses the line to say, is this about is this about what the business is doing? Is this about um, exclusionary policy? No, 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 and and that that's what leads us to say: Is this an anti-Semitic protest, or is this a protest about the independence of a state, or the or the over exuberance of a military act? It, 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 once we get that anti-Semitic label in there, it's really hard to shake.
2: Well, and and yeah, but these people, you know, the owners of the bakery, we don't know what they think or or anything. They're simply being targeted for who they are. And you know, if you look at the the Russian invasion of Ukraine, yes, yeah. there were individual there's Targeting of you know, of you know, by individuals, which is unacceptable, as I mentioned. But I don't think we ever saw uh, a a business, a Russian business, with two hundred angry po- protesters out front, chanting and screaming, and uh, you know, with with um, ready to to potentially do more. And you know, Jews are being targeted in this way, and we sort of conflate everything as well. This is this is hatred, and but this is a whole new level of hatred, Greg. And this is what my my concern is.
0: What do you hear from police officers, rank-and-file officers right now doing their best that are concerned about patrols, concerned about protests, concerned about what could, we could see next weekend?
2: Well, I haven't had a lot of conversations with the rank-and-file. I was actually out at the uh, police graduation yesterday. Yeah. And um you know i uh, I am speaking for myself. I have to be clear about this, not as a police service board member, this is strictly John Burnside counselor, but I have had conversations with uh, senior senior officers, and they're very they're very concerned and, and they take it very seriously. like that is the 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 thing that gives me some level of comfort is the seriousness which of which you know Chief DemQ and uh, senior officers are are taking this situation.
0: What's a step that says, and, and what's the uh, protocol to asking for help um, and asking just for reinforcements? We obviously were very well organized for the G20 Toronto Summit back in 2010. Um, this has a few more moving parts, I think we'd agree. What, and I guess I'd have to compare it to the Ottawa police just saying during the Freedom Convoy, we're overrun here, so we do need potentially provincial and federal help. What's the protocol for that ask, John?
2: I think it's just a phone call away, right? I think the mayor makes that can make that call. Obviously the police chief can make that call. Um you know that is one of the I'll say the other nice things about this whole situation or the way the system works here is it's just a phone call away. And you know if the police I know the police chief called other other police services to help mm. out a few weeks ago, right? Yeah. And I don't think it I mean I think they kind of figure everything out later in terms of costs and whatever. And of course, uh, premier Ford's being very strong on this issue. So I don't think it's a matter of, you know, who's paying or anything like that. I think it's all hands on deck and who can help and how can they help. And, uh, you know, there's been a great level of cooperation um, from my perspective with the province, with other police services. And of course, um, you know, Toronto police have done a a fantastic job. And, uh, but, you know, my big concern as well, Greg, is that they're, they're, they are being stretched very thin. Yes. You know, the, the, the service has been devastated in the last eight to 10 years in terms of the numbers of officers. They can't keep up with just regular service calls. And so this, you know, my concern is if this goes on for any period of time, then we definitely are going to need reinforcements. And, um, you know, I think we need to look to the federal government.
0: John Burnside, Ward 16, Don Valley East. Let's keep having these conversations. I really appreciate you, and you've got such a good, enlightened perspective on this. So thanks for giving us your time this morning.
2: I appreciate the opportunity. Thanks, Greg.
0: This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady.
1: Toronto's News, Today's Talk,
0: 640 Toronto. April Engelberg lives in the city. She's run for city council, and she joins us right now on the show. How meaningful these times are to you, how difficult they are for a Jewish person. When you hear, is he right about the mayor? Do we need her to be more visible?
4: Uh, what I'll say is it, it, it's been, I, I said this to you before, it's been a difficult time for Jewish people in Toronto and it's not, it hasn't been getting any easier. And what we saw with the protest on the weekend is they were harassing people at Cafe Landwer, which is on university. And it's a Jewish cafe and it's, it's getting scary for Jewish Torontonians. That's that's the truth. It's it's really a difficult time, and we do need politicians to stand up and stand against anti-Semitism.
0: Have you had friends change their habits? We're hearing an awful lot yes. about people covering up Star of David, not putting anything on their on their door, telling kids to be alarmed uh, somewhat, all of that.
4: I don't like to say it, but yes, I, I do know that people have changed their habits. Um, some people have taken down Um, any signs of Judaism on their home, for example, or avoided some Jewish locations, definitely. And I want to say, personally, I will still proudly be going to Jewish establishments, and I think most of us will be, Uh, and and I'm going to be making a point to be going to Jewish restaurants, for example, because I think that it's important that we stand against anti-Semitism.
0: I mentioned, April, the Toronto Board of Health. Um, They want more money. They had a news conference yesterday about fighting the upcoming virus season. Um, What I saw a lot of yesterday, there's a huge budget. It was in the $280 million range for the Board of Health last year, but they're asking for $5 million more from the province. But they isolate um, fighting off RSV, COVID, and flu cases as well. When I look at overall, I think there's a lot of health issues Toronto is responsible for. But I don't know if this quite has the sizzle for the general public um, to to donate more tax dollars to fight these illnesses that we, we, we sort of have under control.
4: So I am going to disagree with you on this one, Greg. I am in favor of investing more money in Toronto Public Health. And I do think that it's actually a money saver in the end because these illnesses, COVID, flu, RSV, end up do end up costing us in different ways. And I'm proud to say that I did get the flu shot two days ago, and I will be getting the updated COVID mm-hmm. vaccine. So I, I personally think it's a good investment for the city.
0: The one thing I want to hear from um, Dr. Eileen DeVilla, who's our chief medical officer of health, I want to hear about things like the opioid crisis, April. Um, And I know that's hard in a a setting, you know, even in an election campaign, um, you know, open drug use was discussed by some of the mayoral candidates. But what's the policy here? It just seems like we've been I think she's been very, very front and center about COVID-19. But I, I haven't heard how we're like. I think the real pandemic is on the streets and with our young people and with illicit drug use. And I, I never hear that discussed by the med- the chief medical officer of health in Toronto.
4: Well, definitely. So we, we know that overdose death is now one of the leading causes of death. Yeah, it's, it's, it's really. I personally have one of those kits in my place. Just I, I've personally seen three people having an overdose not far from me and called nine one one for them to the extent that I now have one of those kits they haven't actually used it but it's it's definitely a problem and we need to address it head-on because there's a problem with our drug supply and there's a problem with people dying those must be frightening
0: so, moments i've never had a moment like that what what's that moment yeah. like when you when you wi- so witness this one uh,
4: i've seen people foaming at the mouth uh, and rolling on the street like per- the color purple and i've called 911
0: how quickly do they yeah. come
2: a good
4: question I remember one time there was luckily there was somebody nearby that was a doctor so I didn't stay until the ambulance came that time but I, th- I think it was relatively okay Mm -hmm. in terms of response
0: time. Um, we got a couple minutes left, and I know this is uh, near and dear to your heart because we've talked about housing before and we've talked about the capacity of the city and we've talked about empty office space. And there's more than one city councilor that wants to bring this later on this week. I think this happens on Thursday. I know it does, as a matter of fact. There's a planning and housing committee meeting, and there will be a motion introduced to convert older and especially underused office buildings into apartments or condos. This seems incredibly complicated. I'm not an architect and I'm not a builder, but you talk to them and they say it can be done. How important is it to do?
4: Definitely. So what we've seen since the pandemic is that office demand has gone down because people aren't going into the office as much. And it's apparently not as much, you know, the new shiny offices. It's some of the older offices that are not able to get tenants um, for commercial purposes. So the idea is let's convert as many as we can Into housing. Um, And I think it's a great idea. I think it might mean changing some of zoning, changing some restrictions on exactly, you know, uh, windows or whatnot. But I think that the city should definitely make this a priority because these are buildings that already exist and we have a housing crisis. So let's make the best use of what we already have in the city.
0: And so much of it's red tape, isn't it? So much of it is just, you know, you can, you wait four months for this permit. You you wait for the water permit. You wait for getting vehicles through gates permits. It just, it just feels like we get snarled up in that building process.
4: Definitely. And so it, it, anything that we can do right now to increase the housing supply mm-hmm. on a rapid basis, I think is a good move for the city. So we should definitely do whatever we need to do to make these unused buildings and housing
0: april engelberg joining us on 640 toronto always enjoy our conversations thanks for the time and we'll chat real soon thanks
4: so much greg have a good day this
0: is toronto today with greg brady
4: toronto's news today's
1: talk
0: 640 toronto I'm very proud and pleased to bring on uh, our guest who was on last week with us as well uh setting some things straight he's military analyst and retired army colonel jeff McCausland. colonel thank you very much for the time this morning here in toronto
3: Greg, it's great to be with
0: you. Um, what, is the, what is the win, I'll put it this way, for Hamas? This must be by design. There must be a strategy. What would you read it as being?
3: Well, what I'd read of this is, of course, war is conducted in several domains, air, land, sea, but it's also conducted in information space. So this is information warfare. I think in many ways, Hamas may have realized that taking of the hostages, horrible things that they did during the invasion really has had a backlash in many places, around the world far in excess of anything Hamas has done in past. And now they're trying to demonstrate or describe themselves more as victims. So as a consequence, this dribbling out of hostages shows a certain degree of their humanity as they're really dealing now with trying to enlist more support for Hamas around the world as Israel prepares for a ground incursion. And as we know, conducts massive airstrikes on the Gaza Strip.
0: And I'm guessing you won't think this changes Israel's response, which has been at times um, vengeful. It's been full of rage. You can't blame them. They lost a, they launched a, Hamas launched a vile attack um, on Israel, um, and Tel Aviv is wounded and angry. So there's been a very retributive campaign. This probably doesn't change a thing Israel will do, will it?
3: Well, it may change the following, and that is the timing. And I'm a little bit surprised, frankly, that the ground incursion has not already begun. It certainly appears Israel's prepared. They've called out 360,000 reserves. They've got 160,000 active forces. They've been conducting massive air, artillery, and missile strikes uh, across the Gaza Strip. They've been conducting reconnaissance. There been reports of conducting raids. The Israeli ground forces seem to be ready to go. And the reason they think they're delaying is there is this behind-the-scenes, and these two people obviously demonstrate that, Ongoing negotiations, most likely conducted by Qataris as an intermediary, mm-hmm. trying to see if they can secure the release of more hostages. I think that may be a cause for Israeli delay. The second thing I think the Israelis are now more and more coming to grips with is military application. This invasion is a means to an end. What is the end state that you're trying to describe? You can say we're going to destroy Hamas, fine. But what are you going to do with the Gaza Strip in the aftermath? That age-old question that we used to say is, infrequently asked in washington when i worked in the pentagon and the white house which is and then what what happens after this and the military application of force has to shape that future you hope
0: well you put it so brilliantly and we've seen it a couple of different times in not just in our lifetime but in the last 20 years when you go after the taliban post 9-11 what happens to afghanistan afterwards you're going in looking for weapons of mass destruction with saddam hussein being toppled what happens afterwards and sometimes the answers aren't very pretty
3: no, they're not very pretty at all, and, and that's not to say that there's an elegant, good choice here. Well, we're talking yeah. several bad, bad choices. I thought it was very interesting. For example, when Mister Biden made his public remarks to the nation, and when he made his public remarks in Israel, he said the following: You know, we understand the re- the, the sadness, the, the demand for rage, the rage, the revenge, etc. Uh, we experienced the same thing in an, after nine eleven. We made a large number of mistakes. Clearly alluding to the conduct of U.S. military operations and the aftermath in both Iraq and Afghanistan, and so he's kind of counseling them to think about that as they prepare for the next phase.
0: When you hear, um, we played that clip, and I really, uh, I hope, I hope you caught the end of it with the reporter um, from BBC World Service documenting that there was a belief there was going to be a much, much larger hostage swap. And again, I know I'm, I may be repeating the question here, but I think people will ask why. How beyond PR does Hamas benefit from releasing 30 people at once, 40 people at once, children? They've only released a mother and a daughter and two elderly women so far. That's probably also by design because that tugs at the heartstrings.
3: Exactly. And this photograph that you talked about of shaking hands and Sam shalom, if you're a Hamas information war affair guy right now, that, that's great success. My only guess, and it's certainly a guess, is mm-hmm. Hamas now is angling for some period of ceasefire. And, and that may be the, what they can get in response to releasing the hostages. Every time you're making the deal, you have to say, okay, what's in it for me? Now, for Hamas, certainly releasing people, a certain amount of more positive public opinion may be in it for them. Two or three people may accomplish that task. What if it? What if I get give you 50 people? Is there anything greater that you can give me in return? My guess is at least a temporary ceasefire that would allow Hamas you, to move some of its leadership, perhaps out of the region, uh, reconsolidate, prepare for the ground offensive. Would be the I would imagine that Hamas is angry
0: for retired Army Colonel Jeff McCausland, our guest uh, military analyst, joining us on Toronto today. What's going through the mind of an IDF soldier who is waiting to go on the ground? Um, I can't imagine it. Like at some point, your life changes forever, and you'll be asked to do things, and you'll you'll be like, pardon the word, programmed to do things that you knew you were potentially going to do, signing up for, but there was no guarantee.
3: Yeah, I can remember that distinctly as we were preparing to go into Iraq. And I commanded a battalion, and we were the first guys into Iraq. Those days and hours just prior to crossing the berm, making the invasion, were nerve wracking and really worked very hard on soldiers' minds. It's, it's the great unknown what's going to happen? And you know, in very general terms, what's going to happen. But specifically, obviously, you don't know what's going to happen. You know, there's going to be great danger, not only to you, but to your buddies, who so you're very close. That's a grave moment of concern. Uh, but they're doing the things. I think all soldiers do, and their officers and NCOs I'm sure are hard at it, that is making their last combat checks, checking their vehicles, checking their equipment, um, checking each other, uh, getting some rest, looking at all the latest intel as it comes back, as they prepare, going over their plans over and over and over and over, so you know exactly what's going to happen next, at least as you hope it's going to happen next, in the plan you have for the particular area of operation that you're going to be conducting.
0: Last thing, Colonel, it's not meant to put the enemy in a demographic box, but but in a scenario where you you have a lot to live for, you want to get back, you want to complete your mission, get back to your family, get back to where you live, and you're fighting an enemy who is very willing to sacrifice their life right in front of you and take you with them, that also has to take a toll.
3: Sure. I mean, every officer knows that your mission, is, to, or your, your goal is to accomplish the mission assigned to your particular unit, and then as best you can to safeguard the lives and the safety of the soldiers on your command. But it comes in that order. Mission first, we used to say, people always. So you're, you're thinking that through as well. And as a consequence, your rules of engagement may be effective. Rules of engagement, when a soldier can use his, his or her individual weapon. We know, for example, that Hamas has used suicide bombers in the past. I'm sure that affected how the Israelis thought through rules of engagement. Mm-hmm. But it's going to be unbelievably difficult in this context because of the urban nature of that particular warfare, where you've got to go into the buildings and go, and go through apartment by apartment, you know, uh, closet by closet, mm-hmm. basement by basement, yeah. for an area that has got 2.2 million people in it, and make sure that's all clear along the way, knowing full well there's 300 kilometers of tunnels underneath that they can move through and come up behind you.
0: Yeah, and that's that's probably why a ground war is inevitable, even though it's been delayed so far. Colonel, thank you so much for the time. I learned so much during our conversations. I think our audience did as well. I appreciate you being on.
3: My pleasure.